0: Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight: Former President Trump hitting 50% support in New Hampshire. What new polls are telling us, and why Nikki Haley might have a better shot in the Granite State? NTD's Iris Tower, the primary updates. The former president isn't happy about the Eugene Carroll defamation trial, and the judge isn't happy about Trump's actions in the courtroom either. Find out what they plan to do next. Senate leaders express optimism in reaching a deal on border reform and funding conflicts overseas. But Republicans in the House and Senate are not in unison. Will this deal end up in a stalemate? Melina Weiskup on Capitol Hill. Texas today facing a deadline to hand control of a public park back to Homeland Security. Find out what the agency might do if Texas's National Guard doesn't evacuate. Arian Pastar reports. Israel Defense Forces report killing another high-level terrorist. Meanwhile, Iran launches a missile strike into a nuclear-armed country. Jason Perry has the latest on the Israel-Hamas war.
1: This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer.
0: Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. GOP candidates ramping up campaign efforts in New Hampshire as its first in the nation primary is just days away. But new polls show a narrowing lead for Trump compared to Iowa. And today's Iris Tau has more.
2: Today, all leading GOP candidates are heading the campaign trail in New Hampshire as Trump tows his historic win in Iowa.
3: The largest margin of victory in GOP history. Is that good?
2: A new poll released by Suffolk University, Boston Globe and NBC shows that 50 percent of likely New Hampshire voters support Trump. But unlike in Iowa, where Trump led both second place DeSantis and third place Nikki Haley by some 30 points, the poll shows that Trump's leading Nikki Haley by only 26 points in New Hampshire. DeSantis, meanwhile, is polling only at five percent. And another poll by the American Research Group shows that Trump and Haley are tied at 40 percent in New Hampshire. And the reason for a seemingly tighter race in New Hampshire can be attributed to a few reasons. For example, unlike in Iowa, undeclared and independent voters can actually vote in a New Hampshire primary. And recent polling has shown that Nikki Haley actually has quite some support from the less conservative base in New Hampshire. And as Haley is increasingly campaigning and putting all her efforts in New Hampshire race, Trump is again, toggling between the courtroom in New York and the campaign trail today. That's a bit another development on the efforts to remove him from the ballot. A judge in Maine today told election officials to wait until the U.S. Supreme Court decides on Trump's eligibility for the ballot. And that's despite an earlier decision to remove Trump from the state's primary ballot. It means that Trump can effectively stay on the Maine GOP ballot when March 5th, which is Super Tuesday, comes. And that's as the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to hear oral arguments in a similar case involving the Colorado Supreme Court ruling earlier next month. Back to you.
0: There was plenty of commotion during today's trial for the Eugene Carroll defamation case. Former President Trump was in the courtroom as Carroll gave her testimony. He spoke after coming out of the court mo- moments ago. Witness today, the a person I never knew, I never had anything to do
3: with. It's a totally rigged deal, this whole thing is rigged, election interference. But this is a person I have no idea, until this happened obviously, I have no idea who she was,
0: Carol is a magazine columnist who accuses Trump of sexual assault in the 1990s. She was on the witness stand for direct examination by the judge and Trump's attorney. Trump appeared angry and made loud comments during her testimony, saying things like, Carol's statements are false and it is a witch hunt. The judge at one point warned Trump that he could be removed from the courtroom if he keeps making comments. Trump responded saying, I would love it. Soon after, Trump made a post on Truth Social, saying the judge suffers from a major case of Trump derangement syndrome. The former president also said, I feel an obligation to be at every moment of this ridiculous trial. Trump also asked the judge to delay the trial by one day so that he could go to his mother-in-law's funeral tomorrow, but the judge denied his request. Congressional leaders this afternoon met with President Biden at the White House to discuss funding for a variety of issues, including Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan and the U.S. southern border. Senators are now in the final phase of reaching a deal, but Republicans in the House and Senate are not on the same page. NTD's Melina Weiskup has more from Capitol Hill.
4: Congressional leaders expressed optimism after leaving the White House, where they discussed with the president a supplemental package that would address border security as well as aid to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. House Speaker Mike Johnson expressed that he understands the urgent need to send money to Ukraine, but didn't elaborate much beyond the fact that he said he wouldn't settle for the status quo instead shifting his attention to border security saying that they would not settle for anything less than a well-rounded package which includes returning to Trump era policies like remain in Mexico reforming parole authority and more we must have change at the border substantive policy change restoration of the remain in Mexico policy it is the end of catch and release it is reform to the broken uh, asylum and parole systems But we're seeing a fundamental difference in the messaging coming from House Republicans and Senate Republicans. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell today saying that Republicans need to make compromises, and it's now or never. Listen to this.
5: If we had a
1: 100 percent Republican government, president, House, Senate, we probably would not be able to get a single Democratic vote to pass what Senator Langford AND THE ADMINISTRATION ARE TRYING TO GET TOGETHER ON. SO THIS IS A UNIQUE OPPORTUNITY TO ACCOMPLISH SOMETHING
4: Senate Democrats say they're working in good faith with Republicans to try to find a compromise on border security so they can get this foreign aid secured. However, they say Republicans shouldn't be making this dependent upon changes at the border, which is one of the most complex and highly partisan topics here on Capitol Hill. Senate negotiators working on this deal have not yet released legislative text or even a framework around this border security and foreign aid deal. However, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says he hopes they can have this deal by next week. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weisskopf, NTD News.
0: As lawmakers meet with President Biden for budget talks today, the House is investigating the administration's border policy. NTD's Arian Pasdar has more from a congressional hearing, starting with Representative James Comer commenting on Biden's requested border funds.
3: The Biden administration is doing what it does best, asking taxpayers for more money. But more money isn't going to solve much on the border, because what we are seeing isn't a money problem, it's a policy problem. It's a problem of not enforcing U.S. immigration law. No amount of money can fix bad policy."
6: A witness at Wednesday's House Oversight Committee hearing said the most needed policy changes are expedited removals and detaining individuals waiting for their court dates instead of releasing them into the country. Democrats, meanwhile, said if immigrants were allowed to work, it would actually benefit the U.S. economy.
7: We actually have to make it easier for these individuals to participate in our economy, get a job, support themselves, and live the American dream.
6: Meanwhile, Texas is facing a deadline tonight to hand Shelby Park back to Homeland Security. Last week, Texas National Guard took control over the border park. Shortly after, three immigrants tragically drowned in the Rio Grande close to the park. After the drowning, Homeland Security sent a letter saying Texas has to hand the park back by January 18th. Otherwise, Homeland Security will consider all other options available to restore Border Patrol's access to the border. However, a Monday court filing confirmed that the National Guard wasn't actually alerted of the drownings in time to save the immigrants. And lastly, New York Governor Kathy Hochul wants to add about $2.4 billion in aid to deal with New York City's illegal immigration crisis. That would bring the state's support for the Big Apple to $4.3 billion. Harry and Pastor, NTD News.
0: Israel is now focusing much of its military operations in the southern Gaza Strip, reporting that over 30 terrorists have been killed in the last 24 hours. Meanwhile, Iran, which backs the Hamas terrorist group, is now causing international concern by launching missiles into neighboring countries. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest.
8: On Wednesday, Israeli forces reported striking this vehicle, killing a high-level terrorist in the West Bank. Video captured after the strike shows Israeli forces surrounding the vehicle and trying to put out the fire. The IDF said that terrorist and other members of his cell were planning to carry out a large-scale terrorist attack in the near future. This precision strike in the West Bank comes as the IDF reported killing over 30 terrorists in the southern Gaza Strip in Khan Yunus in the past 24 hours. The
3: war continues and it will continue until the end, until we complete all our goals, the return of the abductees. The elimination of Hamas and the making sure that Gaza will no longer pose a threat to Israel.
8: And according to Israeli news outlets, Netanyahu said the war could go on until 2025. And as the Iranian-backed terrorist group Hamas could now be in its last days, Iran itself has begun launching attacks from within its own borders to other countries. On Tuesday, Iran launched missiles and attacked drones at Pakistan, killing at least two children. Pakistan's state-run media said the strikes hit two bases of the Sunni Muslim terrorist group called Jaish al-Adul. Iran's foreign minister said those attacked were linked to Israel. An official from Pakistan, which is a nuclear-armed country, said this about the attack. Pakistan has always sought cooperation from all the countries of the region, including Iran, to combat terrorism. So this is unacceptable, and Pakistan has a right Uh, to to respond to any aggression committed against its sovereignty. And on Monday, Iran launched strikes at Iraq. Iran hit a building in the Kurdish region of northern Iraq, which Iran claims was used by Israelis to conduct intelligence operations. This was Iran's first direct military attack in the region linked to the Israel-Hamas war. The Iraqi Kurdish Prime Minister had this to say after the attack. Uh, What's surprising, we are not
3: a part of this conflict. We don't know why Iran is retaliating against civilians
8: of Kurdistan, especially in Erbil. We have no animosity towards any of our neighbors, especially Iran. An Israeli spokesperson did not confirm or deny whether the location was used for Israeli intelligence operations. Israel is also facing attacks from Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon. And Yemen's Houthis have been firing missiles at cargo ships in the Red Sea that it believes are headed to Israel. On Wednesday, the Biden administration reversed course and is now going with the Trump administration's decision to label the Houthis as a terrorist organization. Jason Perry, NTD News.
0: An Israeli woman and her family were taken hostage by terrorists during the October 7th Hamas invasion. She and her three-year-old twins have been released, but her husband remains captive. And now she recounts the horrors her family faced.
5: Here's the story. A lot of the times the girl was just, were just crying. I'm hungry. I'm hungry.
9: Sharon Alana Cunio, her husband David, and their three-year-old twins were among over 200 hostages taken by Hamas terrorists on October 7th. Mrs. Cuneo and her daughters have been released, and now she's providing a rare glimpse into the terrifying ordeal of being a hostage. It started with a Hamas attack on their kibbutz.
5: I started to lose um, conscious. And at that point, Danielle told me, she shook me and said, let's open the window and get out. It's much better off that they shoot us and that there will be no pain, no suffering, instead of watching all of us choke up to death in here with the girls.
9: After the neighborhood where she was being held was bombed, Hamas moved her family to a hospital.
5: After about nine days, the house next to us was bombed and they decided to move us because all the walls came falling like tumbling down on us with glasses and everything. So they brought in an ambulance. This guy, David, is a corp, covered him with a white sheet, put me in a um, Uh, traditional Arab clothes, put Yuli in my hands with a sheet over her and told me to look down and put us inside the ambulance, which took us to the hospital in Hanunas, which we stayed there uh, up until the end.
9: The food they were given was barely fit for human consumption.
5: We only got pita bread, which was moldy, and this uh, box of uh, feta cheese, which is supposed to be in a fridge. but. We can't, so we just like opened it and ate it. We all had diarrhea and throwing up.
9: The family is recovering from their harrowing ordeal now that they are safe, but her husband is one of the over 100 hostages still being held by
5: Hamas. I cry all day. I just sit around and cry all day, watching the videos, all kind of groups looking for any information about him. Watching his pictures on my phone and hearing his voice messages.
9: The nightmare continues until her husband is freed, and she can't stop thinking about his last words to her as the family embraced for a final time in captivity.
5: But he told me, fight for me, don't give up. Please yell what I can't yell. Please help me to get out. And he told me, I'm scared as hell. This was the last sentence, I'm scared as hell.
0: Coming up, American money is flowing into China's military. This at the same time China is building its warfighting capabilities. Lawmakers struggle to solve the problem. Details on that and more in just a moment. And record setting Arctic cold continues today in many parts of the country. We take a look at how Americans are coping after the break. Welcome back. Is America pouring money into China's military? China's hypersonic missiles, surveillance tools, telecommunications tech, are these all made possible by American dollars?
10: Lawmakers try to figure out the scope of the problem. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. American money is flowing into China's military.
3: Beijing is developing advanced technologies critical for military, intelligence, surveillance and cyber-enabled capabilities with dangerous implications for our security. We should not be making Beijing's job easier.
10: At a House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing Wednesday, lawmakers said they have the power to limit exports to China, preventing China from getting critical technologies for its military. But it's not enough.
9: Export controls alone don't provide a tool to prevent an American venture capitalist from saying, you know what, that's an interesting opportunity. I might not be able to ship a tool over to China, but I could invest $20 million in
10: this upstart Chinese firm that's trying to build that same tool. China expert Peter Harrell said Congress can't control American investors. They can invest money in Chinese companies, which could ultimately benefit China's military.
9: Under Xi Jinping thought. There is an idea of mobilizing all of China's society behind China's ultimately military aims.
10: Harrell said that giving money to any Chinese company could potentially benefit China's military. He said there's no corporate independence in China and corporations there must help the Chinese Communist Party achieve its goals. Even if those goals involve the alleged genocide of Uyghur Muslims and forced organ harvesting from religious minorities, there's even a hospital, 301 military hospital in Beijing, uh, where, you know, if Xi Jinping wants a new liver, he'll probably get it from a Falun Gong practitioner who's 28 years old. I mean, how, how? perverse is that? Lawmakers brought up that giving money to China's military is especially dangerous right now, with China openly showing signs of aggression.
3: War is on Xi Jinping's mind. Less than a year ago, uh, China held its annual uh, two meetings, what they call them, the Lianghui. Xi Jinping gave four addresses to those, uh, to to delegates to those two meetings. All four of them
9: uh, had the common theme of the need for China to prepare for war.
10: China expert Matthew Pottinger said China is currently building military mobilization offices across the country, air raid shelters across from Taiwan, and military hospitals. Virginia Gibson, NTD News.
0: And in more China news, Chinese scientists experimenting with a new mutant COVID-19 strain. How deadly is it? Learn more tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time on NTD's China In Focus. Turning now to weather. People across the country battle the elements in another day of brutal cold and dangerous wind chills. NTD's Daniel Monahan has their stories.
3: The National Weather Service says about 150 million Americans are under a wind chill warning or advisory as an arctic air mass spills south and eastward across the U.S. In Kentucky, a dramatic rescue of campers. Four college students were stranded atop Courthouse Rock in the Red River Gorge area on Monday due to a winter storm. The search and rescue said it was one of the most dangerous rescues ever attempted in the gorge. In Massachusetts, a snow-covered road led to this vehicle skidding out of control and flipping over on Tuesday. Not just people face challenges from the frigid winter weather, animals like this dog can also get into trouble. This Utah firefighter is plunging into the water to save the trapped canine. Bob the dog doesn't realize his good fortune and puts up a struggle. But it all ends well, and Bob does his dog water shake, a sign he should come out of this just fine. Philadelphia got its first significant snowfall in almost two years. Isaiah Stout is enjoying the winter fun with his young daughter, making a snowman.
11: My daughter's four.
3: She doesn't remember the snow, so this is her first time actually checking it out. Stout says his kids lost their minds when they woke up and saw snow all over the ground. We didn't have any snow stuff, so we got to run a target. It was really crazy in here. Got their snow suits and their snow boots, and then now they're excited, so this is cool. <laughs> really cool. Dan Westcott says the snow is nice and makes things quieter. I was hoping for more. I could have done with a snow day. <laughs> Dangerously cold wind chills are continuing to affect much of the Rockies, Great Plains, and Midwest, with wind chills below minus 30 degrees in many parts of the central U.S. Tuesday. Chicago resident Richard Weinberg says his two sweaters, made in Peru, are keeping him toasty.
5: Plus, it's probably the most beautiful time in Chicago ever. This is very unique. For
3: some, the frigid weather is just a state of mind. An opportunity to be extraordinary. Animals across the nation were teaching people that your outlook on the winter weather is everything. Like Luna the polar bear here, rejoicing in the fluffy winter carpet. Or this otter enjoying a nighttime dance and tumble. And this spirited golden doodle Freya putting on a show in the snowy grass. Daniel Monahan, NTD News.
0: Coming up, the Houthis are terrorists once again, but our guest says the Biden administration isn't really changing its position much. Hear more of his analysis on the threats of terrorism. Are Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis going to drop out of the race? Our guest says they don't have a chance of becoming the GOP nominee. Hear her explanation for voters' loyalty to Trump after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. All leading GOP candidates campaigned in New Hampshire with the primary just days away. New polls showed former President Trump with a narrowing lead compared to Iowa. Trump appeared in a New York courtroom for the Eugene Carroll defamation trial against him. The judge threatened to kick Trump out after he made loud comments during Carroll's testimony. Congressional leaders met with President Biden at the White House to discuss funding for a variety of issues, including Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and the southern border. Senators said they are now in the final phase of reaching a deal on border reform. Iran launched missiles and attacked drones at Pakistan, saying they targeted those linked to Israel. The international community is concerned that the conflict in the Middle East is spreading. Amid the current tension in the Red Sea, the Biden administration is redesignating the Houthis in Yemen as a terrorist organization. Joining us now to analyze the move, as well as the broader threats of terrorism that America faces, we have Kyle Scheidler. He is a Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Analyst at the Center for Security Policy. Kyle Scheidler, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show.
11: It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, following a rise in Iran-backed Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, the Biden administration is redesignating the Houthis as a terrorist group. This is after undoing that designation from the Trump administration. Now, in your understanding, why was that reversal made in the first place?
11: Well, the Biden administration really excels above all at making it look like they're doing something when in fact they're doing nothing. So, Here they're redesignating the Houthis as a terrorist organization, uh, removing, having previously removed the Houthis on essentially the first day of their administration, uh, really just sort of out of spite against the Trump administration, Um, and now finding out that in fact the Houthis are a great deal of trouble. They do they do act as a terrorist proxy of Iran, and the Biden administration has been taking flack in the press uh, endlessly over their decision to remove the Houthis from the terror list. So here they are uh, trying to make it look as though they are correcting their mistake. But if you look at the actual language uh, that National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan put out uh, in their announcement, there's a 30-day wait before any sanctions take effect. Uh, There are numerous carve-outs built in to the designation to ensure uh, that uh, the Yemenis are still able to receive all manner of shipments. There's an explicit uh, statement saying that the US is going to continue to tolerate the movement of uh, items in Yemeni ports headed to the Houthis. So, Really, this is all about making it look like they're doing something, ending uh, the bleeding in the press where they're getting attacked, while at the same time not actually really changing their position all that much.
0: Hmm. Now, in response to these strikes by the U.S. and the U.K., the Houthis are vowing revenge. Now, reports are noting the open border, the record number of known terrorists crossing into the U.S., and also these potential sleeper cells that are already in the U.S. Now, how serious of a risk is all of this?
11: Well, it's pretty serious. The Houthis have no real demonstrated ability to conduct terrorist attacks internationally. Uh, they do have the ability to target Saudi Arabia. They've done that qu- quite a bit. We may see them do some of that in the future. They haven't a, really have a reported ability to target internationally. Their sponsor, Iran, however, does. Uh, both IRGC and their proxy, Hezbollah, have the ability to conduct attacks uh, throughout South and Central America. And potentially in the United States as well. We know that they have uh, Hezbollah cells in the United States which conduct intelligence and preparations uh, for such an attack if they were to choose to launch one. Uh, They have also worked with Mexican drug cartels in the past, including uh, attempting to hire drug cartels to conduct assassinations and bombings. Uh, So they are willing and able to do that. Uh, and if there is an escalation on the homeland, it will ultimately be Iran's hand, not, not the Houthis that does it.
0: And expanding on that, you have a piece out commenting on this video from an al-Qaeda faction that's teaching would-be terrorists how to make bombs and use them on airlines. Now, this is bringing back memories of 9-11. Is this just monger, fear-mongering or is this a legit threat?
11: Well, anytime you're talking about Al-Qaeda, you have to take them seriously. But what we are seeing here is sort of a distributive effort. They're sharing information. They're trying to uh, build on the uh, fervor and the attention that Hamas' attack on Israel has created, and they're trying to take advantage of some of that uh, to get some eyes on them. Terrorist groups do constantly struggle with each other over attention and media focus, and so al-Qaeda is trying to bring some of the spotlight back on them. Um, On the positive side, positive for us, Al-Qaeda has struggled in recent years to pull off really elaborate uh, operations, but and so they're relying here on trying to get a local, um, maybe homegrown, uh, lone wolf-type actor to, to conduct an attack using the information that they've provided. Uh, where we do have to take them seriously, however, of course, they still have the ability to train in Afghanistan as well as in places in West Africa and Somalia, so, and we so we can't take our eye off the ball there, particularly uh, with their affiliate Al-Shabaab in Somalia remains very capable, and they have links back to the U.S. homeland. So we have to watch them very closely. But I think in a, to a certain point, this is al-Qaeda trying to, to, trying to pull the spotlight back onto them.
0: Hmm. And given all of this, what can law enforcement do to ensure American safety?
11: Of course, uh, all American law enforcement need to be uh, ever vigilant, uh, particularly now. Um, they need to have, I think, very importantly, local law enforcement needs to have a good understanding of the, the various communities in which these terrorists hide uh, in their areas. So they, they understand it. They, they they know who's normal, who's who's in the area. And, and if there are changes, then they, they should be watchful for that, as always. Um, and then, of course, the big thing is the southern border. Getting control of the southern border. Uh, You know, the reports of uh, 400 terrorists or suspected terrorists crossing the border just last few years, Uh, and the thousands of uh, unknown migrants who have crossed the border. Uh, And when you don't know who someone is, you don't know who's hiding among them. And so getting control of that is the single biggest uh, homeland security priority that that we have.
0: Quite concerning indeed. Kyle Schadler, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. With the Republican primary down to just three candidates, where are their campaigns headed? Are Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis' supporters going to change their pick after Trump scored a historic win in Iowa? Joining us now to discuss the future of the Republican primary, we have Avita Duffy Alfonso, staff writer at The Federalist. Avita Duffy Alfonso, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show.
7: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, Trump left Iowa with a historic massive win. He was outperforming in several areas. He left with 51%, and in terms of points compared to DeSantis was in second place, he has a 30-point difference. Most are saying he wouldn't pass the 12-point historic level. In your understanding, how has the media been covering or not covering Trump's Iowa win?
7: I mean, it was actually astounding what happened uh, on Monday night. So MSNBC actually refused to air his full victory speech in Iowa. They did air the full speeches of uh, Nikki Haley and of Ron DeSantis, who lost. So I'm not really sure how that's quite as relevant to the viewers. But what, what Rachel Maddow and MSNBC essentially, essentially said was, we can't fact check everything Trump says as he speaks. We can't uh, filter it through the prism of our own political narrative. Um, so therefore, you guys cannot hear what he has to say. We at MSNBC are the arbiters of truth. We don't want to expose our viewers to Donald Trump. Um, so we're just not going to play his speech, which I think made it much more transparent than I think ever before, um, just how, how far they have descended into uh, propaganda. They have no journalistic ethics. They aren't real reporters. Uh, they are truly an arm of the Democratic Party.
0: And given Trump's Iowa win, many DeSantis supporters, including conservative commentator Ben Shapiro, are now saying that Trump is the nominee. He's the clear winner in that regard. Many DeSantis supporters are also switching their support to Trump. What does this tell us?
7: Well, I think it's a good thing that there are DeSantis supporters who are saying, you know, we're going to put our eggs in Trump's basket. Now it's clear that the voters have decided um, that 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 he's the he's going to be the nominee, and we're going to to back him. Some DeSantis and Nikki Haley supporters are still with DeSantis and Nikki Haley, even though they don't have a chance of winning, which I think uh, is very short sighted. What I think uh, Trump's win really says is. Whether people like Trump or not, he, he, in the Republican Party, whether he's the preferred, really the preferred candidate, he represents uh, a strain of the new right. So what he represents is is the people who who feel like they have been cast aside by the American elite and who feel misrepresented and lied about by the American elite. I mean, look at what happened on CNN on Monday night. You had uh, Joy Reid telling people that the reason they voted for Trump, Iowaans voted for Trump, is because they are white evangelical racists. I think regular voters, middle America voters, resent that. And they associate Trump with that struggle with the American elite. Uh, and so they, they, like I said, they, they, they recognize themselves in him, and they're supporting him. And if you ask Trump supporters why do you support Trump, oftentimes they don't say immigration policy or the economy, although those are things that people care about. They say he sticks up for us. They say he's on our side. That, I think, is the takeaway from Iowa, and that's going to be the takeaway um, for, for the rest of this general election.
0: And given all of that, DeSantis isn't expected to do well in New Hampshire. What does his campaign future look like? When might we expect him to drop out?
7: It's a really good question. I don't think we can really know. I think what it's going to depend on on how much money there is, because money is is the lifeblood of any campaign. So if the money dries up, um, if the DeSantis supporters, financial supporters, uh, dry up, and I think they are, I think most of them are actually gravitating toward Nikki Haley, because these aren't real, authentic, authentic conservatives who care about this country. Um, these are people who are never Trumpers, who are Uniparty advocates, who are Forever War advocates, um, and so so yeah. So I think. Once the money dries up, he'll be forced to resign. Do I think he'll be as gracious as Vivek was? Um, I don't think that DeSantis has the social skills to do that, frankly. And I think he has really bad advisors who are going to tell him not to concede um, in a a very uh, conciliatory way. Um, So I don't think it's going to be a good resignation when it happens. I don't know when it will happen. It's all going to depend on the money.
0: Avita Duffy Alfonso, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Coming up in the NFL, lost in the aftermath of the Chiefs' frigid win was Patrick Mahomes' helmet-breaking collision. Dave Martin joins us to discuss the manufacturer's comments when we come back. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, a lot going on. Let's start in the NFL, where the helmet manufacturer weighed in regarding Patrick Mahomes' broken helmet on Saturday, saying it did its job. Now, have you ever seen an outer shell break like that?
1: I mean, never. I mean, usually if there's an issue, it's with the face masks or the screws connecting it uh to the helmet or something but as you can see in the photos here it was a pretty big chunk that actually came off now when it happened i think we all chalked it up to the extreme conditions the negative 20 something degree wind chill would certainly make it more brittle now this was after a pretty hard helmet to helmet hit but you see those all the time in the nfl you don't see helmet helmets break like this So, In fact, when it happened, no one really seemed to know what to do. The refs actually paused the game clock and play clock so he could switch helmets. I was surprised he didn't have to come out for the play. So were the uh, announcers actually. Now Mahomes, his only comment was the need to watch where they store the helmet because it was so cold when he tried to put it on, he could hardly get it on. Probably very uncomfortable too with that uh, that coldness. In any case, I thought the whole scene kind of uh, threw the Chiefs off a bit. It was right before a crucial third and goal play that they didn't convert. Uh, So it's certainly, it was a rare scene.
0: Well now elsewhere in the league, Houston's CJ Stroud had some of his post-game on field interview edited by NBC where they posted to social media specifically the part where he praised Christ. What's been the reaction on social media to this?
1: Yeah, Citizens Free Press notices posted both versions on X formerly known as Twitter, of course. Most comments were surprised, but also not surprised that NBC would do this. One comment was that if he praised, you know, what are known as progressive issues, they wouldn't have edited that. Now, some others noted that this is strictly a time thing, which kind of seemed legit. Of course, it only took him for like three seconds to say this, I mean, he literally said, quote, first and foremost, I just want to give all glory and praise to my Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. And then he quickly answered her question. It was short either way. Now, another user noted how some of the mainstream media already censors free speech already. I mean, Trump's victory speech was purposely not shown by MSNBC with the excuse that there's a cost to them knowingly uh, broadcasting untrue things. Some users noted that there's an irony to them saying that. Either way, it would seem that their trust maybe isn't very high with uh, Christians nowadays.
0: Well now, over in California, Governor Gavin Newsom said he will not sign a bill that would have banned tackle football for kids under 12. What was his reasoning on this?
1: Yeah, he really didn't quite say. He just said, quote, I'm deeply concerned about the health and safety of young athletes, but an outright ban is not the answer. Now, he didn't say what that answer actually was. I'm actually for this bill. I mean, the effects of repeated head trauma seem to be pretty severe. There's no need for kids that age to be already getting concussions when you can play like flag football or really any other sport. I mean, I don't think anyone's career is gonna be won or lost in Pee Wee league football, but it can certainly be hurt with a bad head injury. Now, admittedly, I would be, I would have been upset if I was taught I couldn't play at that age, not that I was a star player or anything, but we all know a lot more than we did back then. And this still allows them to play three years of junior high football before even going to high school. Now, as far as the bill, Although it can be overridden by lawmakers, I mean, that hasn't happened in California in like four decades. So I don't think anyone thinks it's going to happen here.
0: Well, now shifting gears to tennis, 10-time Australian Open champion Novak Djokovic won his second round match to extend his win streak there to 30. Now, how does this, his dominance there compare to Rafael Nadal's at the French Open?
1: Yeah, I'm afraid nothing compares to Rafael Nadal's dominance at the French Open. I mean, it's 112 wins against just three losses with 14 overall titles. I don't think anything in in sports compares to this this prolonged dominance. I mean, this is over a two-decade period, starting in 2005. Those 14 titles alone, if he never played the other three majors, would still tie him for third with... Pete Sampras for the third most major titles ever behind Djokovic and Roger Federer. I mean, that's how ridiculous it is. That said, Djokovic, he owns the Australian Open. His titles, 10 titles there are more than anyone else. I think his overall record, there's like 91 and 8, and that's after he lost, you know, the first two matches back when he was a teenager, probably. So we're really witnessing history with his run there.
0: Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.